Welcome to the Boil Dow Coffee Club Podcast, a meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hey, Don. Hey, y'all. I'm Sam. Sam. How you know what, Don? What? This works for us. Over and over and, and over, over and over. Yeah, it's times a hundred. <laughs> times a hundred. One day at a time. One hundred episodes at a time. I know. So this is our hundredth numbered episode. We got those few extras in there, those specials. But boiled owl one hundred. Cool. That it's very cool. And to celebrate, I think we ought to sing. Are we going to have a beer? <laughs> no, this is virtual. Oh, We're recording okay. over Zoom. This is all virtual. No beer. <laughs> but we could sing a barn ra- rouser. Is that what it's called? A barn <laughs> raiser. Do we rouse the barn or raise the barn? <laughs> Let's rouse the dead by raising the barn. A bar stormer. <laughs> no, that would be a barn stormer. I know for us, it would be a bar stormer. Yeah, that works. A barred owl stormer. <laughs> <laughs> All together now. A hundred, hundred bottles, bottles of beer on the wall. A hundred bottles, bottles of beer. Of beer. Take, Take one down. down. Pass it around. around. 99, 99 bottles, bottles of beer, of beer on, the on the wall. Oh my God, this God. is horrible. <laughs> We're going to have to record this separately <laughs> or something. <laughs> that is just not going to work. Okay, we'll record it separately and put it in right here. Right here? <laughs> right here. Right here. Right oh, one, you mean right two, here. Three, here. Four. A hundred bottles of beer on the wall. A hundred bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Ninety-nine bottles of beer on the wall. Ninety-nine bottles of beer on the wall. Ninety-nine bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around. Ninety-eight bottles of beer on the wall. Ninety-eight bottles of beer on the wall. Ninety-eight bottles of beer. Take one down and pass it around. Ninety-seven bottles of beer on the wall. Ninety-seven bottles of beer on the wall. Ninety-seven bottles of beer. And take one down and pass it around and 96 bottles of beer. <laughs> Which we've done. Magic of editing. <laughs> That's great. Although you have another version of that, don't you, Sam? A uh, hundred baggies of meth on the wall. A hundred baggies of meth. Oh, wait, what? Huh? You be you. <laughs> hey, I ain't done that stuff. I don't plan to. So we're no. good. Thank goodness we don't have to do any of that anymore. Thank you. My God, my life was leading me to it. So when did you get sober, Sam? Uh, My last drink was June 22, 2003. But then I had that restart that I uh, got honest after using poppers and diet pills in ways that are not sober for me. Uh, And that was in 2012. And that was March 17, 2012. Yeah, that's going to be nine years. Thanks. Yeah, that'll be the nine years that I did not pick up uh, because I started over because I reset. So first, first nine year chip. All right. And then I've got I got sober in uh, 94. So it's been a while since I've had a drink. And it's so wonderful to be free of that crap. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you got so much other crap. You needed to be free of that. 
I watched. I, I, so wait, wait, no, this is we we speak in it. I had so much other crap. Not yeah, right. Time. That's right. <laughs> I can take it, Sam. But the the, <laughs> the watching people come in and come into Zoom meetings and they want to quit drinking and they have no idea how. And this is the way I was too. Cannot believe it's possible to live without drinking. And it is. I, in a year, the first time I've been to a face-to-face meeting, I spoke at a fellowship hall, a treatment center nearby, mm-hmm. and everybody was wearing a mask and they had a, a plastic shield up in front of it, which I liked in front of the speaker podium. But I liked having that shield in front because I've always had a fear of assassination. Okay. Um, so the bulletproof. That's, that's not bulletproof. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I like that. But, you know, I told my sponsor that and he said, Don, in your case, it would just be a garden variety murder. <laughs> Assassination. You don't need to elevate yourself. God, sponsors can be harsh. <laughs> and loving. And Lovingly harsh. <laughs> Uh, but it was it was uh, great to actually go to a face to face meeting and see uh, all these people. Excuse I'm sorry, I don't think you mentioned this, but but you've been vaccinated, so that was a big deal about being that's, able to go out with lower risk. That's why I was able to. But I said I got sober in 1994, and the, and all these people, the most there I think was like 30 days, and they there was this like whoa, <laughs> which I remember. It's like there was people that had five years it's like those people don't understand me yeah totally (laughs) i mean it's the person who's been sober for 30 days that is more relatable in so many cases to the person who's coming in trying to like believe that this can even be done that's the truth but you know i love that you you mentioned you know that that people coming into zoom meetings now because you know they they don't even know that they can get sober that that this is possible how do i do it and regardless of it's it's Zoom or it's a physical meeting or or even calling someone, calling intergroup and speaking to, uh, calling the number in, in a phone book for AA and mm-hmm. speaking to another alcoholic, you know, the whole purpose of the meetings is so that people can find us. And right. then by finding us, we can have that direct conversation with, with someone that talks about what our experience has been and how we got sober, what we've been through and give them the hope that they can do it too. And, uh, and if they want to, we'll help them find the way we'll show them the way. Yeah. If you, if you want to get sober, yeah. Come along with me if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. It is. We have a guest. We do have a guest. Hi guest. Who are you? My name is Michael and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Michael, Michael thanks for joining us. When did so you get sober? For the hardest part of the entire <laughs> Oh, wait, I'm not supposed no, to No, I want to know anymore. when he got sober <laughs> before 100 <laughs> bottles of beer. Has it been over 100, bo- 100 uh, days, uh, years? 100 years? 100 years. <laughs> 100 days. 100 weeks, a couple hundred weeks, but uh, a little over 11 years. October 29th, 2009 is my sobriety. Awesome. Great. Well, Michael, what caused you to come to AA? What was going on inside of you at the moment that you said, I can't do this anymore? Uh, th- things had not been good for quite some time. Uh, I'd had problems, you know, without me. First told me I was an alcoholic uh, a couple months after my 21st birthday. I got in trouble in college and started a, a fire and a blackout in a fraternity. And I had to 
got in a little trouble over that and I had to go see an alcohol counselor and they sent a little piece of paper to my house that I was an alcoholic. Whoa, that's rude. It is rude. And then you know, I got a DUI a couple of years later and the, st- the state ordered me to take alcohol counseling classes when I was in my early 30s. I, you know, I developed a, I, de- I developed a way to drink without blacking out. Uh, <laughs> you know, I like to, as they say, powdered alcohol in the meetings, but you know, I like to, uh, and, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I could, that's right. It works. I could drink for days. And I uh, loved cocaine because you could drink, you could drink yeah. and drink and drink. It's true. I did they the same. It's they funny how we find that. <laughs> so they took me out uh, to the IOP out at the Rockingham County Mental Health and tried to get me some help and that didn't stick. And then for about two and a half years, I drank in isolation because you now I was just the guilt and the shame. Uh, I was like, you know, I live in a small town. I was like, everybody knows the gig is up. You know, what, can... What's guilt and shame from what? Just well, from uh, drinking? The things I had done. Uh, you know, I have these two wonderful, loving parents. And, and I knew as I was sitting there drinking, I was like, I've got these two parents, salt of the earth people that love me to death, giving me every opportunity. And I've thrown it all away. And how do I repay these two loving people? By being the absolute worst possible son I could possibly be. And my father came over on the morning of uh, September. It was uh, September 9th, I think it was late. It was Labor Day of 2009. And he came over to my house and uh, he was like, you know, things have got to change. And uh, I was like, I know. And we went over to my, uh, he's like, we need to talk to your mother. So I got cleaned up and I went over to their house. And, you know, by this time, my sister and brother-in-law had moved back from Mississippi and my nephew, the only grandchild, he was about to turn one year old, which he'd been a great distraction for me because they were so caught up with 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 Stephen, they weren't really paying much attention to me, I thought. Mm. So I'm coming over to my parents' house and my mom was like, I want to talk to you outside. And she'd never want to talk to me outside before. And I was, it scared me. And so we went out and I'll never forget the look on my mother's face that morning, just the, the frustration, the pain, the anguish that I had put that woman through, the disgust, the pure disgust she had on her face that morning. And she looked at me, she said, Michael, you know, your father and I love you very much. We've tried to get you help. We took you to see these psychiatrists. Is there something we could have done different? Is there something else we could have tried? Is there something we did wrong? Tell us what we have to do so Stephen doesn't end up like you. Oh, wow. That hit. And when she said those words to me, my heart broke. My heart broke. Because all it took to get sober is breaking mama's heart. I'd have been sober a thousand times over. How many thousands of nights did my mother cry herself to sleep? thinking tonight's the night a police officer is going to knock on the door telling her I've killed myself or somebody else, you know, drinking and driving or, or doing any of the number of things that I was doing, putting my own life and other people's lives at risk at that time. And as I stood there in front of my mother in her backyard, you know, as smart as I think I am, as the way I can think, I, my, my problem is I can think, I think I can think myself out of any situation. And that at that moment, I was physically, spiritually and mentally bankrupt. I mean, I had nothing. I had no idea no plan, no direction. I, I couldn't tell you what, what, I had no idea what I was going to do. And not five minutes after she said those words to me, my phone rang, which didn't happen much because nobody was calling me. And it was a guy I hadn't talked to in almost a year and he was almost one year clean in the other fellowship. He said, how are you doing? I said, man, I'm not doing too good. I said, are you still going to those meetings? He said, I am. I said, can I go? What other fellowship? The, the NA. Uh-huh. And uh, so they came, he and his sponsor came and got me that night and they took me to a meeting and they took me to a meeting the next night and they took me to a meeting the next night. And then I called a, a woman the same age as me that had, had gone to Fellowship Hall, the treatment center you were speaking of earlier. 
And she called me Sunday morning at like five minutes after nine. And she's like, oh, Michael, it's so good to hear from you. And I was like, I just got out of the early bird meet. We meet every day in Greensboro at 8 a.m. And I was like, hold up, sister. Who's the crazy person here? Like, you're calling me at <laughs> Sunday morning. <laughs> it sounds like you've already been in the fairy dust, you know, calling me. <laughs> but you're being crazy. And, too. and so uh, I got up. I uh, Sounds like you wanna, you're talking about being from Reedsville to Greensboro at, at 8 a.m. I was like, you got to get up early you gotta get up early <laughs> that's not just gonna you're not gonna fall out of bed and be three no, minutes no. So, uh, i got up and i went and i've been and uh it's been my home group ever since uh no i go you know i'm there you know five or six days a week with you know of course we've been on zoom for the past year we're getting ready to celebrate one year of being on zoom and we've we had to increase the number because we were maxing out at 100 for so long so now we, oh, we wow. that's a big meeting and we've got uh we've got home. That's group a big members. Zoom meeting. We have five or six people that come from California and Arizona every morning, so they're up at at four forty five. Oh, now that is not okay. I'm logging in. Yeah. Uh, I'm got, not going to do that, Michael. But thank you I, for I, inviting I, me. Yeah, they've invited <laughs> me out there to, to you know to speak uh, at the California meetings. You know, it'll be seven a.m. there, but it's ten here, so you know it's like halfway That's through the good. you know mid morning. And I was like, I don't care how good y'all's meeting is. I'm not getting up at 5 a.m. to come to it. You know. <laughs> so your home group from the beginning was this uh, early bird meeting? Early bird. Yes, it's been my home group for 11 7 a.m.? 8 a.m. 8 a.m. 8 a.m. Eastern people, Some people time. say it's too early. I say, no, it's the same time every day. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, now, one thing, Don, you got to admit is that, you know, that 930 men's meeting at Summit that we've attended uh, for so long. Uh, yes. Sometimes 9.30 was too early. <laughs> well, the first time I went to it, I was like going, do I really want to commit to going to a 9.30 a.m. meeting? It was it was kind of hard for me. So, you know, I, I have been to the early bird, but I've only been a couple of times. <laughs> you know, I heard someone uh, tell me a long time ago that if you go to an early morning meeting, you are serious about sobriety. I, I, that's it's hard I to deny. If, uh, if you're going to get up and be there at 8 a.m. And then I don't know how people walk around with untreated alcoholism till eight o'clock at night. You know, they wake up <laughs> with alcoholic thinking and they don't get yeah. any help till, yeah. you know, 12 yeah. or 14 hours later. And I was like, man, I get up and start your day with my people and get, get my day started right, getting the right mindset, the right mind frame. So what happened when you came to AA? Did you resist it or, well, or did or had you just given up? Uh, well, I guess truth be told, I really just came to get some people off my back. I mm -hmm. didn't have any intentions of staying. You know, when I graduated high school, I wasn't like, well, by the time I'm 35, you know, my life plan, you know, by the time I'm 35, I'm going to be a good upstanding member of Alcoholics. Alcoholics and that was yeah. not my life. <laughs> yeah. AA is the largest organization in the world filled with people who never intended to be, be a member of it. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, didn't, I still didn't think I was an alcoholic. You know, they told me I was an alcoholic when I was 21. And I was like, well, I'm, I found myself sitting in these meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was like, well, these, that's good. I was like, these people obviously need some help that are here. And I had graduated from phase one to phase two of that IOP out of the Rockingham County Mental Health. So I was like, well, if I'm going to, if I'm forced to be here for 30 or 60 days, maybe I can help some of these people with this vast there amount you of go. that I had. And you no, know, I, and in my mind, you know, I no longer suffered from alcoholism. I'd already, <laughs> I'd already cured myself of my alcoholism with my current drug addiction. So I no longer <laughs> suffered from alcoholism. I just wanted to get off the cocaine, you know, I was like, I can just stop doing cocaine. Barry ain't never hurt anybody. Right. And, uh, oh boy. So, uh, 
So I'm coming to the meetings and uh, you know, I'm listening to what I'm hanging on y'all's words. I'm listening and I'm trying to dissect AA and I'm trying to figure it out. You know, I'm plotting and scheming. I don't, I don't have an ounce of humility, so I can't ask anybody what's going on. I got I to figure it all out on my own because I was scared to death. What would you what you would think of me if I couldn't figure it out on my own? Because that's oh yeah, that's what you're taught. You you know you you got problems. You figure it out. You make it work. You know that's that's, that's what it. being competent is. Yeah. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Yes, some or buy your bootstraps. Some, yeah, I'm reading the steps on the wall, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to pray. <laughs> I'm not going to get a sponsor. It's uh, not a la carte. <laughs> and, yo, well. well <laughs> I figured that out later, <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, did you do the, did you do the short form of the steps in your mind? That's the one oh. I, that I liked to the short form being, uh, made a one, list two, of all, <laughs> <laughs> made a list of all persons we had harmed and asked God to remove them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I sat around on step none, admittedly for a while. Step none. Yeah, yeah, to, I have I'm, never I'm, heard that statement. I've never heard that phrase. Yeah, I, I love I'd that. Go out, to, go out to dinner with these guys, you know, and I'm hanging out with other people new and recovery, and they're talking about meeting their sponsors and doing step work. No, Michael, what step are you on? I'm like, I'm only going out to eat with you guys after the meeting step. What do you mean? That's what step I'm on. Like, but you know what? That is an integral step. I mean, if we're going to have something before step one, that's totally it. And yeah. that is just fellowship, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's it's such an incredible thing to because you know, going to meetings is not where you get to know people. It's it's after the meeting and before the meeting, those conversations where you actually get to know each other. Certainly. I looked up that that. I came, it was September 13th was the first day I came to the uh, Summit Fellowship Club. And that weekend they had the fish fry out at Burr Mill. Uh-huh. So I went out there and I was like, you know, even though there's no pictures here, but I'm big. I like eating. So they, uh, so they, I, they got, but there was like 100, 100, 120 people out there They're having a fish fry, pitching horseshoes. But, and I was like, well, man, you know, I was like, maybe there's something to this. Cause you know, I was 34 years old at the time. I was like, if all it is, was going to meetings and sitting around with the guys that are 50 years old or older, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. Like, you know, I couldn't have done it. And then, but mm-hmm. I needed some, uh, some fellowship and some hanging out. So I'm at the meeting every morning and I'm eavesdropping on your conversations, inviting myself places. I don't get invited. I was like, well, now I know where they're going and I'll meet them there. And without, <laughs> I'm hanging, I'm listening to meeting. I'm like, I'm just want to hear somebody say the one thing I need to hear that's going to fix me. What I later realized is I was waiting for somebody else to do it for me because I'm lazy. And I, and I thought just sitting in that chair for an hour every day was magically going to change everything in my life. You know, and if nothing changes, nothing changes. It only changes that one hour out of the day. Mm-hmm. I, I, I describe it to people. It's like, well, it's like going to the bus stop every day and hanging out with the people at the bus stop because you like them, but never getting on the bus. And so that bus goes to all different places. You can go across town. You can go to the movies. You can go to the mall. It can take you anywhere. But if you go hang out at the bus stop, you don't ever get on the bus. You're not really going anywhere. What an analogy. I love that. I love it. Yeah, get on the bus. (laughs) Michael, there's two things that you have said that has just really stood out to me that I want to to come back to. And that is, you you, you were told when you were 21 that you were an alcoholic. And you heard it several times, I imagine, in the years prior to coming to AA. But it's not until I said that I'm an alcoholic that it actually meant anything. No, anybody could 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 have said that I'm an alcoholic, but it just doesn't carry the weight until I admit it and own that as, as a truth for me, or even entertain the option that I might be an alcoholic. But the other thing that you said that I absolutely love 
is you invited yourself to places. You listened and found out where they were going to be. And so for you to have done that and 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 paid attention to where people were going and, and like, I'm going to show up there, even though they didn't invite me. I love that. I mean, yeah, that is making yourself a part of. Yeah. There's a lot of willingness on that part too, to include myself. I mean, I, it's easy to stand back from AA and like, just like, uh, isolate inside of a meeting, but by inviting yourself to places where events are happening and that sort of thing and, and being willing to show up there is there's some willingness there. So when did you surrender and get a sponsor? Uh, I didn't surrender till October you know, 29th, 2009. And uh, to touch on what uh, Sam was saying about that, that's I was sitting there listening. Y'all were giving, y'all were freely offering me the solution to my problem every day, but I couldn't hear it because I had not successfully done that first step. It, I, I had gone to see, I don't know how much, how many thousands of dollars my parents wasted on psychiatrists and sending me to places. And it was somebody who knew what they knew about addiction and alcoholism out of a book. And they looked down their nose at me and they told me what my problem was with this and that. And if that first step says I admitted I was powerless, I'd have turned around and walked out and I'd have never stayed. And what gave me the courage to make that surrender, to make that admission was you, you making that sitting in a room with 50 or 60 other people and hearing them tell their stories. I knew they knew what they were talking about. It was like, they'd been following me around reading my mail and the, these 60, 65 year old women telling my story. Yeah. They had the same fears, the same insecurities They reacted the same things that the way I had, they had been the same places that I'd been. They'd done the same things I'd done. And they felt the same way I felt. And they had suffered from alcohol to exactly the same way I had. But they didn't anymore. And I had lost, uh, I'd grown up going to church, but I was Presbyterian, so I call it religion light. I basically just learned how to tie a necktie by the time I was 10. That's about all I got out of that. <laughs> and uh, and so by the time my early 20s, you know, some things had happened. And I was like, this, this God business, it ain't working for me. You know, I've seen too many bad things happen. And so I turned my back on God. I was, I was 24 years old. I remember standing in my living room and I was 34 when I came in. So for 10 years, I turned my back on God. And before I believed God would work in my life, I started to believe God would work in yours. And uh, Jimmy B, you know, was at the early bird every morning. And uh, he grabbed me aside one day and he said, Michael, well, actually he said, boy, what you <laughs> have is a complete lack of humility. And you are in need of ego deflation. He said, look around this room. And when there's 50 or 60 people there every morning, he said, 50, 60 people here every day, staying sober one day at a time together with each other's help, who couldn't stay sober a day on their own. How arrogant is it of you to say it will work for all of them, but it won't work for you? What you are saying is, God, you are a bigger problem than God himself can even solve. So how arrogant is that? Man, I can't hear what Jim is, say that. Where's he, where's he getting that? Was it from your sharing? Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I have a, I have a big mouth and, uh, I've, I'm admittedly, I would say what I was thinking. And I was like, cause I remember saying, you can't say what you're thinking around these AA people because they, they correct everything. They, they <laughs> turn out everywhere you're wrong. I like, man, you can't tell them nothing. They, they turn everything around on you. It's always your fault or my fault. You know, that's right. And, uh, so like every <laughs> On October 28th, uh, they had, I'd heard them say in the meetings, you know, I, admittedly, I was like, well, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I just want to fix my drug problem. And they said, if you don't think you're alcoholic, try some controlled drinking. So, I'm, so I'd be like, so I'd go drink seven. I'd have seven and go home and I'd read from 
like the daily reflection or the 24. And I'd go ahead and preload me up a share for in the morning because I just knew after I'd been out, you know, lighting the pilot and I'd go read a little AA literature and I just would come in and, you know, when I have about seven beers and then read up and get some. Yeah, read up. Yes. I already knew what I I already had. it. I already (laughs) had one in the barrel. I had it loaded up for him. And I knew when when my lips parted and the words started to flow out like, a glistening waterfall, the clouds would part and the sunlight of the spirit would shine in, shine in, and those people to Summit Club would be lifted up and carried out on angels' wings, floating. <laughs> this might have been what Jimmy B saw in yeah. you when he said you needed the ego deflation well, at death. Well, I knew those I knew those good little men and women at the Summit Club were hanging on every word I said. Did you but, carry a pulpit around with you? <laughs> well, are you... We all say I, I sit by the door and so I, I've, I've sat there for, you know, 11 years in the same seat. It's got a nice butt groove in it. <laughs> Those good little men and women, they would come by after the meeting. They would pat me on the shoulder. They would say, son, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that nice? These sweet little men and women are praying for me. You know, they care. They're, and and back, as, admittedly, I did not have one ounce of humility. So I figured this out all on my own without asking anybody. I was like, when they say they're praying for me, what they're actually saying is they think I'm crazy. I was like, they th- I said, so I was like, don't you pray for me. I pray for you. I'll wake up and pray for you twice before you even think about waking up. I'm like, pray for anybody. I'm already praying for, for you before pray you can pray. <laughs> so you people, you people are sneak and and you can get sober on spite. Spite is a powerful tool. You can get sober on spite. <laughs> But you better develop a relationship with the higher power, which is uh, I went out uh, so I'll get to my last my last drink was went out October 28th and kind of lost count. You know, we was drinking pitchers and got a little carried away and ran into a girl I'd gone to high school with. She let me know she had a little something in her pocket. She had some homegrown, and uh, so we went back <laughs> we went back to my home and we smoked it. And uh, I come to the next morning and I'm. I'm I'm nude, and at some point in the night, I had baptized myself in my own urine, and so I woke up and I looked down at me, and I looked over at her, and she's about as big as hairy as I am, and all and all everything being equal, I assure you, she was as equally disappointed in me as I was with her. <laughs> and so I looked at me, and I looked at her, and I looked back at myself, and I said, "Look at you now, genius! Look at you now!" Because I thought I was so smart. I was like, "This is it. This is the best it's ever going to get trying it your way." And then I was tired of it and it wasn't good. And I said to myself, I was like, Michael, because I've been coming to AA for a couple months at this time. I said, Michael, if you can't uh, attempt, make an attempt to work this program, you're giving yourself every excuse to fail the rest of your life like you have up until now. And I convinced myself I'd been going to meetings for a couple months and met some people. And I'd been, I'd been to a dozen different meetings and, and met over a thousand people who were you know, coming and going to AA. And I said, Michael, I don't think all these people are in cahoots trying to pull off the world's largest practical joke on you. Like all these people aren't coming and going to meetings every day, just in the hopes that they're going to trick you into thinking that there's something to it. And I knew I didn't like being told what to do. I said, Michael, you need to choose to want to do these things. And before, and I remember looking out the window, I was sitting up in bed and I, and I was still, you know, wrestling with the idea of God. And I, and I said, Michael, it seems like this getting sober business is hard enough without making it a one man mission to prove whether God exists or doesn't exist. And you people had said some things, that I, that I heard, and it was two things. You said, God does not make too hard a turns on those who seek him. And then you said, 
Michael, try it our way for 90 days. If it doesn't work, your misery is 100% refundable. So I said, Michael, why don't you just act like there's a God? And I got down out of my bed and I got on my knees and I said, God, please help me. This is a greater problem than I can solve on my own. And I've asked that same God to help me every day since then. And I haven't found it necessary to take a drink. And that's just how it worked for me. And, uh, and I, I come well, where did, so it was just, I'm wondering where the willingness came from. Do you feel like that, that God gave you the willingness at that point? Or do you think you just saw like the veil was lifted and you saw what was really happening? For me, that's what happened is suddenly I saw without all the delusions and the, and the uh, crazy thinking were, were taken away. And I could see that at no point was I controlling my drinking. It was controlling me. Even when I wasn't drinking, all I thought about was drinking and and when I saw that, that's when I came to AA. So you had come to AA, but you, that's, it sounds like that's what happened to you was the veil was lifted. Well, I know now, I didn't know then I'd, I'd had a spiritual and a spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, because I can look back over my life now and see all these spiritual experiences that I've had, but it wasn't until I was spiritually awakened that I could see them. Yeah. Because it wasn't like it wasn't after staying sober that day. I said, like, "Oh God, thank you." And I was like, "Oh, I stayed sober today." Even after a month, you know, six weeks, I wasn't thinking, "Oh, it's a miracle." I remember my buddy Matt B asking me after I'd been sober about six weeks. He's like, "Michael, there's something different about you." And I was like, "I've been praying," but I was like, "Shh, don't, don't tell me." <laughs> like, I'm just trying it. I'm just trying it out. Like, just trying it. Days, so I'm praying. That's, but, uh, so funny. that's what my sponsor told me is I had a book about spirituality. I called it my own Bible and had all kinds of writings about spirituality and things like that in it. It was all based on me. I'm God. And it, it, there was not, it was like, is, there is, is a God mind? and I'm, and I, you know, I'm part of it, but it was a whole lot me doing it. And the difference when I came to A was it's not me. There is a God, but it's outside of me and I need to reach out to it. And he read all that and he's, he didn't criticize it at all or even engage with it. He just said, let's put this on the back burner for three months. And what do you say? Just focus on AA for three months and then we'll take this back out and take a look at it and compare what you've learned from AA with this and then put it together and see where it is. And it was like, so it was really the same idea that you had right there, which was, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to try this thing for three months and then I can change my mind if I don't want to do it anymore. So that's when I started praying. And that's because I said I was going to do it. It just, it just came about. Um, and then, like I said, it was, I didn't really, but it was about, well, about seven months into it, I got arrested for something I had done when I was still drinking. 18 months of statute of limitations on most crimes, if anybody wants to make a note of that. So, <laughs> um, and when I got, a, I had to go turn myself being arrested, my, my, my vehicle at the time got impounded, you know, because it was paid for, so it was confiscated. Uh, I actually turned it into a sheriff's deputy vehicle. But I was not consumed with fear. I didn't want to run and hide because I'd been sober for seven months. I was chairing meetings. I was giving people rides. I was helping. And I had this sense, I cannot describe in words, a sense of freedom and, and cleanliness. 
is like, come take a look. I have nothing to hide. Because what Did I you was have a sponsor? Told, oh, I had a sponsor at this time. Yeah, I was working the steps. Uh, I was obviously I was seven months sober at the time. And uh, when did you that, get a sponsor? I missed that. So uh, I picked up my sponsor at the New Year's Eve conference that year, 2009. So oh, I cool. didn't drink for a little over a month. Then I got a sponsor, and I finally, out of, out of an act of desperation, did a fourth and a fifth step at the end of February that year. Because uh-huh. Okay. Because, I mean, you can't work the steps, really, till you get a sponsor. You need a sponsor. to. Correct. It's, it helps not, a lot. It's, it's not me help. doing it. I can't, I can't fill out a form and do it. Suggested. <laughs> yeah. I got arrested, and arrested. I, wasn't, I wasn't consumed with fear. I didn't have to run and hide. And, uh, and it was and, – and, you know, of course, I didn't like that I, the fact that I'd gotten arrested. But the, the people they had told me, well, Michael, God doesn't give you things before you're ready to handle them. And if I'd have got arrested – January 3rd of 2009, when I committed the crime I'd done, I'd have gone to prison because I've been arrested a couple of times and I was looking at going to jail for eight, you know, eight to 10 years. I, I, look, I was looking at that twice in my lifetime. And then I got to get a, you know, a DUI, which, you know, luckily there's no jail time was associated with that because I just had the one. Uh, but um, so I could have very easily gone to prison for eight or 10 years. If, and, and if, if I got arrested in January of 2009, my parents would have been like, thank God, maybe this will save his life. But in the timing that it happened, I, I reached out to uh, people in and out of AA. And it was very humbling. It was I was working on the seventh step, and I was and my sponsor had me praying for humility, and I got a big dose of it. So yeah. I called. Uh, I went to seventh step. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, mm-hmm. a higher power to remove our shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Well, you 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 want a dose of humility? Call twenty seven people in your community and tell them you know you got arrested for selling drugs to an undercover police officer in the Walmart parking lot and get them to write a, a character letter reference for you. And but when I when I would exhibited the willingness to do that myself, people, the outpouring of support and love that I've received uh, from like retired county commissioners, city councilmen, uh, a retired judge, a retired pastor, uh, people in NAA that would help me. And most of those phone calls ended with me in tears because at that point in my recovery, I still felt like I didn't deserve any help. Because I felt like I was still, still felt like I was a bad, I was still reveling and still in the pain of all, all the harms that I had caused to others. Mm-hmm. Um, You're I, still facing the consequences. Of and the I was still facing consequences. Well, you know what I, you know what I did? I just got busier because uh, I, I joined my third home group. My, they mailed me my, my phone bill came in August in a box. It was 83 pages, <laughs> 83 pages. Cause uh, you know, I, before I was talking about I'd eavesdrop on the conversation to find out where people were going so I just started my own events. I started texting like five, 10, 20 people. Michael. <laughs> we're going out for wings on Monday night, Wednesday night. And that's why I love new people because they didn't, Dude, they didn't know awesome. me. And uh, yeah. so every Wednesday night, I, it had grown where I had a phone where I could text as many people as went. And I would text over 200 people every Wednesday night, inviting them out for wings and to go to the 16th Street speaker meeting. And I'd have anywhere from 10 to 25 people show up. And I'd get at least 30 to 50 responses. Thank you for thinking about me and including me. And I think those were more important than anything because wow. everybody loves being included. What an example. That, That's uh, cool. Dude, I love that you did that. Yeah. So, okay. So wrap up the story with the. Okay. So I, I will, uh, I got through, uh, you know, I went to court. Judge said, I've never seen anything like this before. You know, he's looking at my letters. I got deferred prosecution, which is, Basically, I was on probation for a year, and then it's it's thrown out. It's like it never happened. 
I didn't have to pay any fines. You know, I never mm. spent a minute in jail. And then it was all because of this. They sentenced me to one AA meeting a week. <laughs> like 10 or 12. Okay. I think uh, I can handle that. <laughs> that first year, man, it just, everything flew by. And then I love talking about the spiritual aspect of this. It was, it was then that I realized that God was working in my life. And I love listening to Sandy Beach talks. And he's passed on and he's a famous AA talker. He says every AA, you know, at some point they had that spiritual awakening. And most of them will say they don't know when they had it. But anybody that's got, you know, five years or more, it's, well, do you believe in God? Do you have a relationship with God? I'm like, oh, yeah, when did it happen? I don't know. But it, did, it just did. And it just, like, I know at that point I realized it. And then we have such great literature on this topic. You know, step two in the 12 and 12, it describes every way I've felt, felt and thought. You know, it talks about the man who was president of the Atheist Society and that the hoop AA wanted him to jump through was large enough with room to spare. The man that only believed in science, the man that only believed in himself, the man that had had religion and lost it, the man that looked down on religion as the way of the weak, and then the man that thought he was too smart. And then when they got me, they, when they said, you know, the man that said God's not doing his job right. And then the, the chapter we agnostics, you know, where it says, you know, I, I looked down as, you know, as religion was for the weak and the simple minded. And then it says none of us, none of us could fully comprehend. And and I was like, and I thought all my thoughts were so unique and so original. And here they are laid out in books published 20 and 40 years before I was even born. And then I read somewhere else that most people that have an aversion towards God have an aversion towards someone else's conception of God. There you go. And what Alcoholics Anonymous taught me, the most important thing to me, to this alcoholic, is developing a relationship that's personal to me with that God. Because as I said before, I didn't talk to God for 10 years. How can I not talk to one of my friends for 10 years and expect to have a relationship? So of course, when I start to pray and, and try to meditate, it's awkward and weird. Because I think if I hadn't talked to somebody because I had a resentment for 10 years, it's going to be awkward and weird and uncomfortable. And so, but the more time I spend talking with him, the more time I spend with him, and it describes me. Now I'm one of those men who didn't believe in God and now I freely talk with God you know, every day. And um, So what do you do now to stay sober? What are the things in AA that you do in your day today, one day? Same, same thing I've been doing for 11 years now. First thing I do, my first conscious thought, I turn towards God. I thank him for another day. ask him to help me stay sober. Thank him for all the wonderful blessings in my life, especially during these times we're going through. Pray for people who, who, have, who have lost family members, who have loved ones that are sick, people that are losing their jobs, you know, and I pray for our country. So that's um, a morning prayer? morning prayer. And then I read from uh, a daily prayer book, the daily meditations. Uh, Cause I think that I've always said, that's the most important thing I do every day is spend 10 minutes putting in well thought out thoughts instead of just letting the squirrel out of the hamster cage, yeah. wake like up that. and have a thousand different thoughts going in a hundred different directions and none of them ever completed. So I center myself and then I'll, and then, and then I can successfully start the day. You know, I'm, I go to a meeting most days, I sponsor men, um, and two of the biggest the sponsorship is, is the, the biggest blessing in this program. You'll be able to sit. How many here. people do you sponsor? Six. Mm-hmm. And do you uh, have a limit. Yeah, that's, that's about it. Cause you know, I got a full-time job. I got a wife, I got dog. And, uh, and then usually Sunday morning is, is the time that I meet out. I'm uh, working with two that are, you know, that are in their first, you know, still going through the steps. And I got several maintenance guys, you know, they've been sober for a couple of years. I got one guy that has eight years and, March one picked up five in uh, January. I got one that'll have three next month. So you got two that you meet with on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. 
Well, not every, I talk to them several times a day. And then if I don't get with them every week, I try to do one, one week and one, the other. It's just, mm-hmm. do have, I see. Have yeah, that's uh, interesting to me. I mean, I'm, I think if I got like, right, I just uh, had to turn somebody down and I hated doing it, but I've got six and I've got three guys that I'm reading with once a week and I can't really, I can't really schedule another one in there unless I give something up, give up another AA event of some kind. So it's a Tuesday night book study. So I get together with them Tuesday nights at seven. Uh book and talk and then it's intimate, you know, you only got, and there's a couple other, uh, I had, had a friend that moved away. You know, he's, you know, he's, he moved halfway across the country and he, he relapsed at Christmas time and he reached out to me. And he's like, well, what can we do? And I said, well, we can have a Zoom book, a men's Zoom book study. Cause you know, like I said, we have over a hundred people in the morning. So it's a lot more intimate to share. You know, we, we have yeah. six and 11 guys show up at our book study and it's a lot, you know, everybody gets a chance to share and you can share about things that you you share on a much more intimate level that you won't really want to tell a hundred people, but you feel more comfortable telling six or seven. And right. then we all know each other too. I and mean, then it's all men. So, and then that's, that's important. Out really well. Now you got to have some meeting like that. And then one thing I've always said is, you know, service work, service work and commitments is the foundation of sobriety. At least once a week, I need to have an obligation you know, to meet somebody for coffee, to do something, to open a meeting. I need to have something that I don't necessarily want to do that I have obligated myself to do to help somebody else because it keeps me sober. Cause I, and I'll admit it, like these Sunday mornings, I'm like, oh, I'm going to meet. I don't want to do it. Right. And, you know, hour and a half later, I'm walking out of there. I'm like, oh, God, I'm awesome. I was, why don't we, I wish we could do this every day. But, you know, I love the way That's I feel so... when I leave doing step work with my sponsees. Like, if I could bottle it and sell it, you know, woo. But uh, <laughs> I've, heard that, I've heard that those commitments that I've made to AA are the things that I put between me and a drink. If I don't want to drink, then I'll make these commitments. And then, you know, before I can pick up the drink, I've got, well, I've, but I'm supposed to call my sponsor. Oh, but I'm, I've got sponsees that I'm going to meet with. Oh, but I'm chairing a meeting coming up and I got to be there for that. And I've got to walk through all that stuff before I can drink. It can get drunk on Tuesday if you got to open the church on Thursday. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps anyway. You it does, can it certainly do it, but it helps to have the commitments. Yeah. Before we move on, let's check in on our singers. Bottles of beer on the wall, 63 bottles of beer on the wall, 63 bottles of beer. Take one down, pass it around, 62 bottles of beer on the wall. Yeah, they're still at it. Well, you know what? I think it's time for an old-timer question. Oh, watch out, Michael. Michael, there's something coming in behind you. That sky, it's like, oh, my God. It's time for our old-timers question. Who you calling an old-timer? You! That's what happens if you don't drink and you'll die. Well, no matter how long you've been sober, Sam, it's still one day at a time. That's the way it works for all of us. Sonny. I knew Sonny was coming. (laughs) (laughs) You can post a question at boiledowlaa.org. We have a question from Ira in Hawaii. 
why is everyone so vulnerable? I'm assuming within, yeah, meaning it, within AA. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little strange going to AA and seeing these people. The people in AA will talk about anything. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some things that maybe are better for one-on-one conversations. <laughs> and from where I came from, you know, there's secrets, but we're only as sick as our secrets is a saying that heard in AA a lot. And another way to look at being vulnerable is just being awake and aware of my thinking and how I operate. And those are things that I've, used to conceal, particularly being ashamed of myself. I, I wonder if the question of being vulnerable comes from a position of shame in a way, in that the way I used to operate was from, I've got to be on guard and I've got to protect myself and I can't let anybody really know me because if I do, then they'll find out the truth. And the truth is, is that I am uh, should be named Arnold Peck, the human wreck, <laughs> or <laughs> oh, I, I felt terrible about myself with good reason. I did a lot of bad things that I should have been ashamed of, but having worked through the steps, made amends and tried to correct everything that I could possibly correct where I had screwed up in the past. And then moving forward, pay attention to my behavior. And when I'm wrong, promptly admit it and correct it. Well, then I'm living in a whole, wholly different way where I don't need to be guarded. So I wonder if that's what vulnerable means, being vulnerable, is living with integrity. I'm not sure, but that's, that's what I take from that in a way. Stump the old timer. <laughs> <laughs> Jump in, Michael. So, Michael, why is everyone so vulnerable? Well, you know, it's, the promise is it says we'll know a new freedom and a new happiness. And I think that freedom that was so far to me came from the vulnerability because my whole life was a secret. My greatest fear was being found out for who I really was and the way I was living. And by telling on myself, the fear disappears of you finding out because I've already told. I've already told another man, another God, exactly the things I was so afraid of everybody finding out. And, you know, and I was a fake and a phony my entire life. You know, I'm, I desperately needed peer approval and your acceptance. And, uh, you know, and I tried to be all kinds of things that I wasn't, you know, to impress people I didn't really like that much. And you know what I've found since I've been in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? It's the only place, it's the only place you can go to and find perfect love and perfect acceptance for being the most honest, truest version of yourself. You love me for all my bumps and warts, shortcomings, defects, uh, my insecurities. And, and I learned quickly because it, it, I, I was taken back. I couldn't believe the things coming out of people's mouths. How can they tell this on themselves, whether people are hearing it? But I saw how you embraced them. So I've never shared something vulnerable at a meeting where somebody didn't come up to me afterwards and thank me because mm -hmm. they knew exactly what I, I was taught. They mm -hmm. said, thank you. And a lot of times that gives the, that courage, like that courage you gave me by your admission of being powerless, by me being the biggest guy in the room usually, and being to open up and be vulnerable, the power that I've seen that exhibit in others for them to be able to open up and be vulnerable, because if it's okay for me, it's okay for them. 
the very first meeting I went to, there was, I mean, y'all probably, I don't want to break it. There was, it was a all pro offensive lineman at the meeting and I knew exactly who he was. And when he said his name and he was an alcoholic, I was like, well, man, you know, if it's okay for him to be here, it's okay for me to be here. And so there's strength in that vulnerability and, you know, and, and for being that admission of, it's that admission of powerlessness that, that I never wanted to make. And, uh, but yeah, that, that's where that new freedom comes from is that in the acceptance of it. But anyway, that's, that's my take on it. Thank like you, it. Michael. So uh, first of all, I have to apologize to you, Don, for going stump the old timer. Because one of the things I got to own here is that, you know, I know what the question is and you're the first person who gets it and you don't know what it's going to be. And, and then, you know, the rest of us get a, a moment to consider it while we're listening to you. If, you know, if I'm even listening to you and, uh, <laughs> and so we get a chance to formulate an answer. You're put on the spot. And I, I do want to acknowledge that, but um, so get back to Ira's question. Why is everyone so vulnerable? I love that that you went there about, you know, essentially what I got from what you said, Michael, is that, you know, I've worked the steps. Part way through working the steps allowed me to get vulnerable. Uh, and that was very much so doing that, that fourth and fifth step and continuing the work, um, especially ninth step, um, where I was able, you know, after the, doing some of the, those amends, I was able to look people in the eye, anyone. But I, what a way for me to describe it is I lost this need to look good to other people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm still, I've got an ego. There, there's no doubt about that. And I still want to look good. I don't want to look, if I can't look good, I don't want to look bad. But that is so less of an of a driver for me when I'm having a conversation with other alcoholics. When I know that you're living the same playbook that I'm living. You know, we're, we're trying to do the same thing. And it makes it so that, um, you know, if I fall on my face, you're not going to laugh at me. Well, you might laugh at me. You might laugh with me, but you're also there for me. You got me. Uh, one of the things that I have prayed and, and been aware of, thank God, from early on, uh, from when I would go to and, and be a speaker at a meeting, is that, uh, you know, if I need to fall on my face, flat on my face in this talk for someone to see that you can do that and still stay sober, then so be it. The vulnerability is this kinship that I've got. You know, mine shows up. I've certainly shared vul vulnerably within meetings and such too, but mine really shows up whenever I get into those one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I love something that I heard early on in recovery, and that is our greatest liabilities become our greatest assets. Those things that have happened in my life that have caused me so much pain, that have caused me so much shame and grief, now are things that I can use to help people. Yeah. And that's just really cool. Yeah. I was at a meeting one time and there was somebody new who'd never been to AA before. And, you know, at an in-person meeting, we go around the room and introduce ourselves and say, I'm Don, I'm an alcoholic and Sam, I'm an alcoholic. It goes around the room and everybody introduces themselves and says, I'm an alcoholic. And it got to her and she said, I'm Sarah and I'm an actor. And the whole, the whole place cracked up and about five or six people were going, 
I am too. I am too. I am too. I am too. And afterwards, some people went up and talked to her about it. I don't know that she knew what we were laughing at, but it's even in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we're like actors on a stage trying to arrange the show. And if everything would stay in place, then everything would go great. But all of us have the experience of being an actor in our lives. And that's certainly the way I was. I, I had a poem uh, that I wrote when I first got sober and it was something uh, like a, a clown with a painted smile because I had this uh, happy, uh, go lucky, drunken persona that was Don M. And I was worried when I got sober that I would, who, what about that? What, who am I going to be if I lose alcohol and all the stuff with it? Cause I was like, what, who, the, who am I? That's the question. And to discover, you know, that uh, that's what it's going to be. Okay. That, you know, that you know how they go around the room and people say, uh, if I've shared before, I'll say, I'm Don, I'm still an alcoholic. Or, or then they'll say, I'm still Don, <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. And I was going, oh, so you, I can be an alcoholic and still be Don. <laughs> Not, I, that's the way I took it. Mm -hmm. That vulnerability is, is people being themselves, not putting on a show. Yeah, that commonality that I've got with uh, with the other people in my in my world in recovery um, just makes it so much easier to open up and yeah. and not even lead with the facade, right. not even lead with with that thing that I want you to think I am. Michael. It's been a pleasure to have you on our 100th episode of The Boiled Out. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. It's been fantastic. It's been a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> There's that pesky <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Out podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. If you'd like to contribute to help with expenses, information on that is at the bottom of our website. Visit boiledowlaa.org. You can also email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of Alcoholics Anonymous and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Take one down, pass it around. Three bottles of beer on the wall. Three bottles of beer on the wall. Three bottles of beer. Woo! Take one down, pass it around. Two bottles of beer on the wall. Two bottles of beer. Take one down and pass it around. One bottle of beer on the wall. One bottle of beer on the wall. One bottle of beer. Take it down and pass it around. No more bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> Bunch of drunks. 
I'm done. I, <laughs> I've had enough. <laughs> I could have a few more. <laughs>